Hi, and welcome to our lecture on the first law of thermodynamics. You may remember that we discussed the zeroth law earlier when we talked about temperature. So even though it's called the first law, this is actually the second law we're seeing so far in this course. Now, while I absolutely love all four of the thermodynamic laws we'll be discussing throughout the course, it's the first and second laws that kind of stand out since they set the stage for the two most important concepts of all, energy and entropy. So I'm quite excited to be talking about the first law in this lecture. The key concepts that we'll discuss are the first law itself, different types of energy and work, as well as energy transfer. We'll use a simple motor as an example of the first law to describe how energy is conserved, but changes and flows from one form and process to another. Let's dive right in. In general, energy transfer from one system to another happens routinely in our daily lives. And one form of energy gets converted to another form in many of these processes. For example, when you drive a car, the energy stored in gasoline, which is in the form of chemical energy, is converted to heat energy by burning the gasoline. This heat energy is then used to drive a piston, which in effect has turned the heat energy into mechanical energy. At the most general level, we need to define two types of energy transfer. First, energy can be transferred in the form of heat. And we use the variable Q in thermodynamics to represent energy in the form of heat. And second, energy can be transferred in the form of work. And here, we use the variable W to represent such a, such a type of energy transfer. How do we distinguish between work and heat? Let's take a very simple example. Suppose I hold my hands above a campfire to warm them up on a cold day. In this case, my hands will feel warmer from the heat radiating from the fire, some of which is absorbed by my hands. Now, let's suppose there's no fire, but I rub my hands quickly together. In this case, I produced the same warm feeling in my hands, but in a completely different way. With the campfire, heat was the form of energy transfer. When I rubbed my hands together, the mechanical work I performed was the form of energy transfer. So in the case of work, here's a really key point. There was a thermodynamic force plus a corresponding thermodynamic motion. In this case, the force was created by friction between my hands, which opposes the direction of the rubbing. The motion in this case is simply the movement of the hands back and forth. We can think of this type of work as similar to what we learned in basic physics, namely that energy is equivalent to force times displacement. But here in thermodynamics, the concept is broader. We refer to work as any thermodynamic force times its corresponding displacement. This can be a friction force times a distance displacement, as in the example of rubbing our hands, or as in the classic example used in introductory physics, a mass attached to a spring. But this work term in thermo has many other forms. And in fact, as we'll see in thermo, we account for all of them, or at least all of the ones that matter for the problem at hand. And we'll need to go far beyond a mass on a spring to describe most realistic scenarios. Let's illustrate this point with a simple example. 
Suppose the only work term we know about is that of force times distance. In that case, would we be able to describe the energy processes going on for this weightlifter? When this person holds the weight above their head like this and stays perfectly still, are they doing any work? Is energy being expended? Of course, the answer is yes, since for any of you who have tried it, you know how hard it is. But if the only work term we know about is force times distance, then since the weights are held still, no work is being performed. The motion part of our force times motion is zero. But as we know, even though no work is done with respect to the weights, the body is doing a whole lot of work. Each muscle cell's contraction is generated by billions of molecular machines, which take turns supporting the tension caused by the weights. When a particular molecule goes on or off duty, it moves. And since, move, since, since it moves while exerting a force, it's doing work. So work is done by one molecule in a muscle cell on another. There's a transformation of energy, but it is taking place entirely within your own muscles, which are converting chemical energy into heat. Throughout the course, we'll be adding these different thermodynamic work terms to our repertoire, ranging from chemical work to electrical work to work done by entropy. As we'll learn, each type of work can be described by a thermodynamic force term times a displacement term. And in each case, the work is part of the overall picture of energy transfer in the system. Okay, so that's our initial discussion about work. But what about the other type of energy transfer I mentioned, namely heat? I mentioned in the hand warming example that heat would be transferred from the campfire to the hands. Let's get a little more specific. In a way, the first law of thermodynamics itself can define heat for us, but I'll come back to that in a moment. For now, let me state that heat is the workless transfer of energy. In other words, it's energy that transferred without any of those work terms I just discussed. A really important thing we need to know about heat is that it is energy transferred during a process. Heat is not a property of the system. This is true for work as well. Heat and work only refer to processes of energy transfer. Now, because that's so important, I'd like to make it my repeat sentence for this lecture. Heat and work only refer to processes of energy transfer. This means that we cannot, or at least should not, make statements such as the following. This system has 100 joules of heat. That's an incorrect statement, since while heat is a form of energy, it only refers to energy transfer into or out of a system, not the energy content of the system itself. And this is a good time to take a look at our demo for this lecture. Even though it's perhaps the simplest electric motor one can make, it's a system that helps bring to life a bunch of different forms of energy transfer. So in this lecture, we're talking about the first law of thermodynamics, which is a statement of energy conservation. What I'd like to do in this demo is talk about the different forms of energy and how they can get transformed from one of those forms into another. So let's start with, with this. I think you all know what this is. This is a battery. But what can we do with this? Well, you also probably all know we can power just about anything. 
We can power lights, we can power motors, fans, computers, cell phones, and so forth. But where did this energy come from in the first place? And how is it stored? Well, the way it's stored is in terms of chemical energy that's inside of this battery. And what happens to that chemical energy when I hook it up to, say, a light, is that it gets transformed into electricity. And then that electricity gets formed into light energy. When the battery is empty, if it's rechargeable, I can fill it up again with more chemical energy. And just like I can do a lot of things with the stored chemical energy inside the battery, like power the lights, motors, and so forth, well, there are a lot of ways I could fill the energy inside of this battery back up, like I could plug it into a wall. Uh, but I could also use mechanical energy, turning a crank, to provide electricity to fill the chemical energy back up. So there are lots of different pathways for energy to flow. And that's kind of what I want to show you today. So uh, the first example that I'd like to show is one where we have this device right here, which is a piezoelectric. And in this one, what we can do is we can use mechanical motion to convert directly into electrical energy. So as I strike this piece of, of uh, piezoelectric, what happens is I get a little current in these wires. And what you can see is that here I've hooked it up to a light. And so when I hit it with my finger, the light goes on. Now, what I'd like to do is, so that you can see this more clearly, is I'd like to lower the lights here in the studio just so that you can see that we get a little tiny amount of energy when I hit this piezoelectric. So in that case, what was the energy pathway that we had? Well, we had the mechanical motion of my finger, which in turn converted into a force on the piezoelectric, so it converted into a stress in the material, which in turn created a current, so that's electricity, which in turn made a light go on. We can make these kinds of energy maps for any process that involves energy transfer. And that's in fact something that we do all the time in thermodynamics. By the way, as an aside, when I hit this piezoelectric, what is the real source of energy? Well, if you think about that, it's actually the food that I had to eat to give me the strength to hit the piezoelectric. And that food, well, that was grown by the sun. So actually, this light that I just powered by tapping on this material is powered by the sun. So here's another example of converting energy from one form into another. It's about the simplest way that you can make a motor. What I have is I have a piece of wire, I have some magnets, and I have a battery. I've taped some washers to the top to give the wire a little bit more stability. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the battery on top of the magnets like that, and then I'm going to put this wire on top of the battery. And you can see that it starts spinning. So I've actually made a motor. And what I'm doing here is I'm converting chemical energy into electrical energy, which goes through the wire and makes magnetic energy, which makes the wire spin, which is kinetic energy. So those are the energy pathways that give me this motor. And the important point is that all of the energy pathways can be accounted for. That's the first law of thermodynamics. The first law tells us about the interplay between work and heat in any and all types of processes. Now, in the demo you just saw, energy stored in a battery system is transferred to a metal loop 
that experiences a torque, that is a turning force, and starts rotating. Here, we're converting one form of work, that is electrochemical, to another form of work, that is mechanical. As I mentioned, some of the energy is also rejected in the form of heating the wire. But in addition to these energy transfers, there's now a very important point I'd like to make related to heat and work. Namely, that there are many different ways or paths that one can take from the initial state of the system to the final state. And as I mentioned before, heat and work are path-dependent quantities. In our demo example, let's consider the state of the wire loop. In its initial state, the loop is stationary. In its final state, it's rotating. One of the ways we used to get the loop from its initial state to the final state was by using electrochemical work from the energy stored in the battery. But another way to achieve the same result is by manually using my own muscular force. In other words, I could just spin the loop with my finger. Here, I'm converting mechanical work of my finger to mechanical work of the loop. That's a very different path, but it results in the same initial and final states. That is, the loop not spinning to the loop spinning. And yet, another possibility would be to heat up a gas in a container connected to a piston that then rotates the loop. In that case, I'd be using heat to do mechanical work, and again, the same initial and final states would, would occur, the loop not spinning to the loop spinning. Basically, there are infinitely many ways to go from the initial state to the final state. Heat, remember we call it Q, may or may not be involved in many of these processes. So one could use a combination of heat, Q, and work, W, in many different ways to achieve the same end result. And Q and W will therefore have different values depending on the process I choose. This is the reason why Q and W are called path-dependent quantities. They do not depend on the loop's initial and final states. If they did, they'd have to be the same for any process you chose. And speaking of something that only depends on initial and final states, remember from our last lecture on the ideal gas law that this is precisely what a state function is. Two of the variables we discussed that are state functions are pressure and volume. Here, we can conclude that heat and work are most certainly not state functions, since unlike pressure and volume, which are path-independent, heat and work are path-dependent. Okay, so now we're at a very exciting point in this lecture, since we're equipped to develop the first law of thermodynamics. Now that we know energy transfer occurs in the forms of heat and work, or Q and W, the question we ask is, can we connect these variables quantitatively? Let's look at the three possible paths I described just a moment ago to reach the final rotating state of the loop, starting from its initial stationary state. One case involved the battery's energy, one my finger, and the other heat to get the loop to spin. As I mentioned, in each of these cases, very different amounts of Q and W are used along the path. But is there some combination of Q and W that is a constant for any process chosen? It turns out the answer is yes. If we were to experimentally measure the simple combination of heat plus work, or Q plus W, for each of these paths, it would be a constant. It remains the same for all 
of the different processes. That's pretty cool. And it tells us that the quantity Q plus W depends only on the two states of the system, its initial and final states. This means that Q plus W must represent a change in an intrinsic property of the system. And because it only depends on the initial and final states, it is also a state property. It turns out that this quantity, this change in a system's intrinsic property, is something we've discussed before, back in our lecture on basic thermodynamic concepts. It's defined as the internal energy of the system, or the variable U. As a reminder, internal energy is a quantity that measures the capacity to induce a change that would not otherwise occur. It's associated with atomic and molecular motion and interactions. In basic physics, we learn that total energy equals potential plus kinetic energies. Now, we must add this thermodynamic internal energy term U, which if we want, we can think of as a kind of microscopic potential energy term. Remember our example of a glass of water and a glass of ice sitting on a table. Both systems are at rest and at the same height, so the gravitational potential energy and kinetic energy of both systems would be zero. But the systems are, of course, very different since one is a liquid and the other a solid. It is the internal energy that captures this difference. And you can see why this concept of internal energy is so important when we bring heat into the picture. If I apply heat to the ice, it will melt, changing its phase and completely changing its properties. But during that process of heating, the kinetic and potential energies of the system would still be zero. Internal energy allows us to describe the changes that occur in a system for any type of energy transfer, whether from heat or work. And those energy transfers are exactly what the first law of thermodynamics keeps track of. The first law of thermodynamics states the energy conservation principle. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but only converted from one form to another. Energy lost from a system is not destroyed. It is passed to its surroundings. The first law of thermodynamics is simply a statement of this conservation. Now, stated in terms of our variables, the first law reads as follows. The change in the internal energy of a system that has undergone some process or a combination of processes, we write as delta U. The delta here just means the change in the variable U. So you could think of it as the final value for U minus the initial value for U over some process that a system undergoes. That delta U is equal to the sum of the heat and work energies transferred over those same processes. Written out, the first law is delta U equals Q plus W. Stated in simple language, the first law says that a change in internal energy is exactly accounted for by summing the contribution due to heat transferred into or out of the system and work performed on or by the system. Now, in order to use this equation to solve problems, we need to define a sign convention. Unfortunately, different thermodynamics textbooks actually use different conventions. There's no agreed-upon standard, but that's okay, since we just need to know how we're defining it here, and then we'll be consistent with that definition throughout the course. 
So the sign conventions I'll adopt for this course are as follows. When heat is transferred into a system, we say that Q is positive. And when it transfers out of a system, Q is negative. Similarly, when work is done on a system, it will be positive. And when work is done by a system, our convention will be that it is negative. In terms of our equation, we can see then what this means for the internal energy of the system. Suppose heat transfers into the system, but no work is done during that process. Going back to our hand warming example, this would be the case if the system is our hands and the energy transfer process occurring is that the system is being warmed over the campfire. In that case, the sign of the heat transfer is positive. And the change in internal energy of our system is Q plus W, so delta U will also be positive, since W is zero. On the other hand, no pun intended, if I rub my hands together, then I'm doing work on the system, so again, the change in the internal energy of the system would be positive. In that case, Q is zero, since there's no heat being put in or taken out that does not involve a work term. Now remember, I mentioned that the first law itself can be used to define heat. We can see that pretty clearly simply by looking at the equation of the first law. Since the change in the internal energy of a system during some process is equal to the sum of heat and work energy transfers, this means that heat can be defined in the following way. Heat is the workless transfer of energy stored in the internal degrees of freedom of the material. Q equals delta U minus W. By degrees of freedom, what I mean are the ways in which the atoms and molecules that make up a system can move around. The internal energy is the energy that is distributed over these different movements. For the example of ice and water sitting on a table, there is less energy spread over those atomic scale movements for solid ice as compared to liquid water. That's why the ice is solid. Those internal motions, which are captured by the internal energy, are small enough for the water molecules to become locked into place and form a crystal. The first law can be thought of as a statement of energy conservation, as I defined it, but it is also a statement of the equivalence of work and heat. The first law says that I could change the internal energy of a system by some amount in two entirely different ways. Suppose the internal energy of a system, U, is increased by five joules during some process. So delta U equals five joules. This could be accomplished by performing five joules of work on the system with no heat transfer at the boundaries of the system. In this case, Q equals zero, and delta U equals Q plus W, which equals zero plus five, which equals five joules. By the way, as a reminder of one of our important definitions from lecture four, this type of process where no heat is allowed to enter or leave the system, so Q equals zero, is referred to as an adiabatic process. On the other hand, I could transfer five joules of heat into the system while performing no mechanical work, or any other work for that matter. In this case, the process is non-adiabatic, and W equals zero. Delta U is equal to Q plus W, which equals five joules plus zero, which equals five joules. Now, I, I know this is a, a pretty simple example, but I want you to really see how both work and heat can be used to cause the very same changes to the internal degrees of freedom of a system. And also, I want you to start to get comfortable with the terms in the first law equation. In the next lecture, we'll dive deeper into this equivalence of work and heat in thermodynamics. But for now, 
The key point is that combining knowledge of the types of processes occurring with the first law allows one to calculate changes in internal energy directly from measurable quantities like heat and work. By the way, you, you may be intuitively comfortable with the idea that mechanical work can convert to heat through processes such as friction. That's what happens in the example of rubbing our hands together to warm them up. But did you know that it was James Joule himself who was the first to rigorously test this theory? Joule probed deeply the question of how much work could be extracted from a given source, which in turn led to one of the most important questions of the day, namely, how energy is converted from one form to another. Before Joule, the caloric theory dominated the scientific consensus on the theory of heat. The caloric theory, which dated back to the time of Carnot and Lavoisier in the late 1700s, held that heat could neither be created nor destroyed. The idea was that there existed a kind of weightless fluid or gas referred to as caloric, which flowed from hotter bodies to colder bodies. Caloric was thought of as a substance that could pass in and out of pores in solids and liquids. Caloric was thought to be the substance of heat and a constant throughout the universe that could neither be created nor destroyed. Joule's experiments in the mid-1800s on the mechanical equivalence of heat challenged the caloric theory. In what was perhaps his most famous demonstration, he used a falling weight in which gravity did mechanical work to spin a paddle wheel in an insulated barrel of water. When the wheel spins, mechanical work is done on the system, some of which goes into the form of heat and increases the temperature of the water. From such experiments, he was able to measure quite precisely the mechanical equivalence of heat, which he placed just over 800 foot-pounds per BTU. In case you're wondering, there are about 550 foot-pounds in one horsepower, and a BTU is defined as the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of a pound of water by one degree. Now, these old-fashioned units are sometimes still used today. Just think of the power ratings given to air conditioners. But I wanted to explicitly use them since they were the units that Joule and others at the time thought in. A horsepower was just that, roughly the power of one horse. And just as for temperature, units of energy were first measured in terms of water as a good reference point, like raising a certain amount of it by one degree. In modern units, a horsepower is roughly 746 watts, or joules per second, and a BTU is a bit over 1,000 joules. Notice that in both cases, the current way we think about energy is in the context of a joule. This illustrates how important James Joule's experiments were. They did no less than set the stage for the first law of thermodynamics to be developed. Following Joule, many other scientists confirmed that all forms of work, not just mechanical work, can be converted to heat. So now, I'd like to conclude this lecture by returning to the first law and the example I showed you of the electric motor. As I described, chemical energy converts into electrical energy, which flows through a wire that allows a magnet to exert a force on it, doing magnetic work, which is then converted into the mechanical motion of the loop or mechanical work. In each of these processes, some heat is generated. So W of one form converts to W of another form plus some Q. As long as we account for each type of energy transfer, the first law states that the internal energy of the system 
equals the addition of all Q and W terms. And that brings me to the following question. For this motor, if I just let it go, what is the final state? In the end, where does all of the energy and work go? Well, let's take a look. If I let this motor keep on going, we know that the loop will keep on spinning in addition to heat being generated until the chemical energy of the battery is exhausted. At that point, it will simply stop spinning. And also, no more heat will be generated since no more work is being done. So we started from energy stored in the form of chemical energy inside the battery. And after all those various energy flows, where did it all wind up? Well, some of it went into mechanical work to spin the loop, which in turn did mechanical work on its surroundings by moving air molecules nearby. So you could say that some of it went to increasing the temperature of the air. Notice that this would be a good example of work being done on the surroundings. So the W term in the first law would be negative according to our sign conventions. The heat that was generated during the various energy transfer processes also flows from the system into its surrounding environment. So that energy also went into heating the air. So it's also going to be a negative value for the process since heat transferred out of the system, giving a negative Q in the first law equation. Taken together, this means that after everything is said and done, we have ultimately converted chemical energy into an ever so slight temperature change of the environment. Now, we did do something useful along the way, namely, we made something spin around. But one of the basic questions we can answer with thermodynamics is the following. What is the usefulness of energy? In other words, to what extent can we take energy from one form and make it perform tasks for us by converting it into another form? As we'll learn, it turns out that while we can convert work into heat with 100% efficiency, we cannot do the reverse. We can never convert heat back into work with 100% efficiency. That statement, by the way, is the reason why a perpetual motion machine can never work. The seemingly one-sided nature of work and heat flow cannot be understood from the first law of thermodynamics alone. For that, we'll need to know the second law, which don't worry, we'll get to in just a few lectures from now.